Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. Since the Great Recession of 2008 to 2010, enrollment in Pennsylvania's 14 state university system schools has notably changed with some campuses growing in enrollment and others losing students precipitously. The state legislature's annual system-wide funding was recently ranked 46th out of 50 states, a dismal statistic. With Pennsylvania's population of high school graduates declining in the last few years, something had to give. Pennsylvania is far from alone in facing a challenge of increasing costs and demands from the workforce. Other state systems around the country are in various stages of the same existential crisis. The solution cannot be just to raise tuition and fees, as national research shows student debt is averaging $30,000. One of my guests wrote in an op-ed the following, quote, the labor shortage and all of those help wanted signs are the tip of the iceberg for Pennsylvania's workforce. The state has a significant talent gap. The difference between the number of college educated workers that businesses need versus the actual number in our labor force. It is a problem affecting all of us and, and is evidence of the urgent need to invest in public higher education, unquote. Intercollegiate athletics also plays a crucial role in attracting, retaining, and engaging students on campuses like these. Many of these campuses have highly successful NCAA Division II and I athletic programs with some sports winning national championships. All have loyal alumni and faculty who care deeply about good teaching. My guests today are two of the leaders, CEO Daniel Greenstein and board chair Cynthia Shapira. Dr. Greenstein has served as chancellor of Pennsylvania State System of Higher Education since 2018. As chancellor, he works with the Board of Governors to recommend and develop overall policies for the system. Dr. Shapira is chair of the Board of Governors and president of the David S. and Karen A. Shapira Foundation, leading the development and implementation of the foundation's philanthropic initiatives. Pennsylvania's 14 public universities serve nearly 100,000 degree-seeking students and thousands more are enrolled in certificate and other career development programs. These are important to the taxpayers of Pennsylvania. Dan and Cindy were recently recognized by the city and state politics and policy website as recipients of the 2022 Higher Education Power 100 leaders. Dan and Cindy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be Thank here. Thank you. We are, us. yeah, terrific to be here. You know, Dan, you've written a lot in the last month or so. I've seen um, uh, commentary as well as op-eds in a number of uh, newspapers statewide. And you wrote something in the Allentown Morning Call, which I think laid out pretty clearly the scenario that the PASHI system was faced. Would you mind reading back to us some of that commentary? Yeah, sure. Um, so it goes on, uh, the labor shortage and all those help wanted signs are the tip of the iceberg for Pennsylvania's work workforce. The state has a significant talent gap, the difference between the number of college educated workers that business need versus the number that exists in our labor force. It's a problem affecting all of us and is evidence of the urgent need to invest in public higher education. Today, about 60% of Pennsylvania jobs require some higher education, but only 51% of adults have it, according to a report from the Lumina Foundation, A Stronger Nation. That, that's a big gap. It stretches across critical industries that people depend on, including healthcare, education, information technology, agribusiness, and more. 
businesses will not have the workers they need and the products and services um, that everyone relies on unless more middle and low income students can afford to go to college. And while Pennsylvania state-owned universities are the most affordable four-year colleges in the state, years of lagging state funding has taken its toll. Pennsylvania is 46th in the nation for investments in state-owned four-year universities like the Pennsylvania State System of Higher Education. And it's no surprise that the average net price of attending a state-owned university rose more than 50% in the past decade and triggered a 26% decline in enrollment. So I guess we'll start with Dan, how did Pennsylvania with one of the largest collections of public and private higher education campuses in the country in one state get to this point? Yeah, so I think that the, it was just a, a, a series of, of unfortunate in my view policy choices uh, where uh, you know, generation after generation of state legislature uh, decided to um, uh, ch choose to invest less in public higher education than other states. And of course, you know, the cumulative impact has just grown over time and the, and the, and the problem that we're uh, faced trying to address today is, is just uh, considerable in terms of its size uh, by comparison to what you find in, in other states. Uh, so it's just a, it's a collection of, of, of uh, unfortunate um, policy decisions which have brought us here. Our hope, of course, is that having demonstrated the quality and the um, effectiveness of the Pennsylvania State Systems Universities, that the state will begin to reinvest um, and to begin to uh, redress the, the, the challenges which have really grown up. So just to give our listeners a sense, our, our in-state tuition rates uh, are now frozen for next year at $7,716 for tuition, a $438 technology fee, which is great, four years in a row. Room and board tops around $11,000, while other fees add an additional $3,200, according to your data. But these costs do vary by school. In one of the recent hearings in front of the legislature, Dan, you said students from families earning less than $75,000 a year are leaving way more quickly. And I assume you mean they're leaving the campuses because they can't afford it, but you can explain our enrollment losses are directly related to income. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, so if you look at the sort of overall decline of our enrollments, it's about 27% since 2010. That's uh, not sort of uniform across the board, either across the, all of our universities or across all of our student groups, that the biggest decline has happened amongst students from families earning less than $75,000 a year. I mean, so it stands to reason. We're also seeing, you know, another evidence that this price is driving out, um, you know, students who would otherwise have access and need access to a higher education is that the four, as price increases, the four-year graduation rate, you probably know, grows. People want to get out sooner because it's less money. Um, there is a gap, however, and that gap is opening between wealthier, affluent white students, look like me, um, uh, on the one hand, and low-income students, rural students, because they tend to come from more low-income families, and uh, underrepresented minority students because they tend to come from more low-income families. So the gap between those, those historic gaps and four-year graduation rates are growing as more and more people from middle and low-income families are more impacted by the price increases. Yeah, yeah, it really makes a difference. Cindy, you've been the board chair now for six years. How did the board and the chancellor work together with the campuses in driving this change? Uh, yeah, thank you for asking that, that question, Karen. Um, it's a, a complex and multi-layered um, answer. Um, and uh, so, first of all, um, we put a structure in place, and I would give Dan and his office the credit for it, for coming to the redesign 
you know, formula, the integrations and everything that went along with it once Dan was here. Now, prior to Dan, uh, I was, uh, I've been board chair since um, July, 2016 and actually was appointed to the board only a month or two prior to that. And there were a whole series of things that we did leading up to this, including um, a thorough review uh, that NCHEMS conducted so that we would you know, know publicly and transparently and honestly what our issues were. Uh, and and how, who's, that we, who's that organization, just so the listeners know? I'm sorry, it's, it's, it's NCHEMS, and Dan's going to have to help me with the acronym National Education Management Higher Ed. Dan knows the acronym. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and you probably do too. I can never quite get, but it's a, it's, it's a, 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 uh, highly, um, uh, highly valued, highly reputable, uh, firm of, um, former, uh, it's a you know, higher education, um, uh, leaders, uh, who, who conduct these reviews. Um, and we needed to do that. We needed to say, uh, document, these are our issues. This is why we've come to this place. As Dan said, it was, um, public policy choices, but there were some of it on us as well. Uh, we didn't manage as well as we could have in the face of both shrinking, a uh, shrinking demographic and that uh, those huge uh, big hits in, in state funding that we took in, I would say, you know, 2010, 11, 12, you know, coupled with uh, uh, the, the subsequent, uh, you know, in, until uh, about 2018 when we, well, I would say about 2017, when we started uh, regaining some investment, but it was very, very hard to make up for it. But some of it is on us too, and, and we should be transparent about that. And we needed to do this report. We needed to face up to this. We needed to say, we are going to do our part to re-earn the trust of the Commonwealth, the trust of the legislature, the, the, the trust of people um, and students and parents and all of our stakeholders uh, to reinvest and build this system, which is critical um, to the economy uh, of the state. And so I just wanted to give that as background. Dan came along, we did a search, frankly, for a chancellor who could be a change agent and execute. That was an important part of what the board did. Um, the structure was set up. It included, there were over a thousand people working on campuses over the last couple of years um, who were um, creating every aspect, every component of the redesign. Uh, there was a uh, so there was a lot of work between the chancellor's office and the campuses. Um, the board stayed very on top of it. Of course, we didn't interfere you know, in the actual operations, but we were very involved all along at every step of the way um, and you know, sort of uh, exerted our agency uh, in, in terms of saying, these are the changes that need to be made and, and we're going to uh, look at the options that are being presented and go with them. And then I think the other thing from the board point of view that was really critical was establishing a relationship um, first with the governor uh, and the governor's office. That was critical in getting this done. The governor had to believe in what we were doing. He um, had to be supportive. Um, his Department of Education and uh, the other advisors around him, his policy advisors had to. We had to gain the trust of the legislature too, both parties. And by the way, each party is interested in something different, right? Republicans want one thing. They want cost control. Uh, you know, the, the, the Democrats want jobs supported and no jobs lost. So the board had to work at that level, 
your question was about the campus, but we also had to work at this other level, sort of, you know, above us and at the campus level too, uh, to get this to happen. Just give our listeners a sense of who's on the board of governors. Who are they? Who's who's that comprised of? Sure. So uh, there, the we have there are twenty seats on the on the board of governors. Um, the ones that are sort of pre-designated include the secretary of education, uh, the governor. Um, there are four seats for electeds, um, one from each caucus and each you know uh, house uh, or senate. So that's four. Um, uh, and uh, really the, the, the rest are appointed by the governor, confirmed by the Senate. Some of those recommendations um, for appointments come through other legislators, et cetera, but basically the governor appoints the majority of the board um, and it must be confirmed by the Senate. So I would say it's a political board. It's a politically appointed board. Um, there's, you know, no, there, there, there's no control over it, you know, as there would be in a private institution. It's not self-perpetuating. Okay. And Dan, I'm just curious at, at your office level, how is that, how many staff do you have and how is that staff managed and hired? So, uh, and, and so if I think of, um, so presidents report through me to the board. So there are now 10 of them. Uh, they're hired by the board um, uh, uh, with a process which is driven by um, council of trustees. Each of our universities has a kind of a local advisory structure. Uh, and they drive the process hiring and firing their presidents, but they come through the chancellor to the board. So that's sort of one group um, of 10. And then in the uh, chancellor's office as a whole, there's only about 27 or 28 of us involved in the kind of strategy policy compliance type work that we do. There's another hundred or so people who, um, but they don't report directly to the chancellor. They're actually um, a variety of shared service functions, labor relations, advanced data analytics, payroll, et cetera, procurement, now HR. Uh, those are services to the university. They're paid for by the universities. Obviously, the chancellor's office pays its share. Um, and they really report up to and through the president. So uh, the chancellor's office itself, while it accommodates hosts sort of organizationally, the shared services is very small. It's about 28, 28 of us. That's really helpful. It helps us just get a picture of how your two groups work together and also how they connect with the campuses. And as you said, the state legislature and the governor's office. So that's that's quite a org chart if you think about it that way. Um, so both Cindy and Dan, this was a redesign of the entire state system. There were many, many pressure points that had to be addressed. If I give you some examples of different areas that I think might've been pressure points, can you provide an example or context of these challenges for the listeners? And Cindy, if it's all right with you, I'll start with the academics issue. What would be taught on what campus versus hybrid versus retaining academic programs? Walk us through a little bit of that. Well, again, uh, you know, we, we, we had a, a, a very um, um, deliberative process um, to figure that out. So for each set of integrated universities, teams work together to look at all the various academic programs, you know, where the strong enrollments were, et cetera. The goal overall, was to enable students to get the courses they needed um, in the majors that they wanted um, in, you know, in, in order to graduate. Because what had been happening um, and was, you know, I, I actually, I'm gonna just relate a small story that Dan and I experienced, um, but it, it 
really sort of gave us the mindset about what needed to happen on one of our very first visits it was one of Dan's very first visits to one of our Western campuses uh, in one of our focus groups, um, a, a student actually burst into tears because uh, her program um, had been cut so much that she was unable to get one or two courses that she needed um, in the right order in time to graduate. Um, and she was gonna have to spend all this tuition and, and come back, et cetera. And we just said to ourselves, it, you know, in a system this rich, there, there's just no excuse for that. We have to find another way to do it. And that really, so, so that idea around the ability to offer um, academic programs while not needing to offer everything in, on every campus was uh, a major driver um, with the, the system redesign. It wasn't really just about saving money. It was about greatly expanding student opportunity to academics. Um, so, you know, to answer your specific program, these teams working with the chancellor's office really looked at the program offerings, um, what the market was calling for, uh, what the, you know, higher enrolled programs were, um, how they could be consolidated, um, which ones, you know, could be offered at which, uh, any, each, at each of the different sets of integrated campuses on site, or which could be offered, you know, uh, through um, through a remote model or a hybrid model. So all of that work was what uh, these these uh, academic uh, program redesign teams took on on the on the different campuses. That's pretty remarkable, uh, Dan. You want to add anything to that? No, uh, not particular. I mean, you know. Uh, it was, you know, I, I guess maybe a bit of a reality. It's a hard process. Look, these organizations, these people were not hired to, I mean, you know, first of all, integration was part of a broader system redesign. It affected six out of our 14 schools, six turning into two. Um, that process still going on is particularly intense. And, you know, I think it would be a mistake to characterize faculty engagement as everybody holding hands and sort of running whooping into the field of flowers. Um, uh, but I think, you know, they're um, sort of a grudging acceptance of, of this is the way forward and doing stellar work, frankly, in integrating, uh, blending their curriculum. And, you know, I think hopefully finding some innovation, I think uh, across the system generally, you know, I think driven by a real requirement now that, that our universities really have to act in a balanced budget fashion, you're seeing a greater attention being given to the program array on each university, whether the program array makes sense given the enrollments the university is able to, um, to, to, to have. And then some much more in the way of crosstalk between our universities about, you know, are there ways that we can share important but low enrolled programs, you know, programs that I can't enroll, either I can't enroll enough people to um, justify or a programs like business or healthcare, some of the healthcare professions where I can enroll, I can generate enough demand among students, but the number of specialties I want to be able to offer, whether it's majors or minors or as degree programs at the postgraduate level, are just too broad for me to afford based on what I can. So, so you're seeing universities beginning to talk to each other and say, hey, let's double down collectively on a great physics program, or let's see if we can offer a full range of um, specialties to our physician's assistants by working together or to our business school graduates, et cetera. So you're beginning to see those conversations emerge. You know, They emerge from the insistence that our universities operate um, in a balanced budget way and that they deliver satisfactory results for their students. So you're seeing a much more student-centered 
approach to the academic programming as opposed to, uh, you know, let's put on the programs or whatever our faculty want to teach. We just, you know, that is no longer possible at great places that, like but... the University of Penn, uh, Pennsylvania, I understand. It is certainly not possible at um, much more uh, financially constrained institutions like ours. And if I and if I could just uh, just just to you know sort of put a fine point on it because it's important to understand for you know for for your listeners, uh, the integrations took place at only at at, at six of the the fourteen. So each of uh, three you know became one, um, and there what the kinds of things I talked about had to happen because those schools literally uh, were integrating um, with each other. What you know, what, what just to emphasize what Dan is saying, both the financial uh, need to get um, our expenses aligned uh, better with our revenues, and the example, however difficult it was, it did happen, and it is happening, and it's uh, causing a culture change. Um, I think throughout, you know, with the other campuses that remain um, independent of each other. Um, and, and that was exactly the hope. You know, you can't force it to happen. We don't have that kind of control, nor would we do it. Our system came together as 14 individual, you know, institutions with each with their own long history. Uh, that has to be respected. Identity has to be respected. So the question is, how do you do that while getting the most out of what you can get as a system? And you, you have to move toward it. And it's sort of a, you know, combination of carrots and sticks really uh, is, is what's getting us there. We're really good in higher education at admiring the problem, but trying to solve the problem becomes really challenging. Right. And of course, this is a podcast that includes athletics. So let's talk about some of the challenges of recognizing the independent athletics programs, what schools got to keep their brands, their logos, their halls of fame, their traditions. Talk us through that process. Um, I can start, Dan, if you or sure. Dan, if you want to. No, go ahead. Uh, so, uh, you know, Karen, your listeners should know that that was uh, a critically important issue throughout this process. That was the first question and maybe the last question most people were asking. And what we heard over and over again with all of the um, public input uh, that we, we saw in all the meetings that we had um, in all the hearings that we had, legislators, you know, had, had the same issues. You know, wh what about my school? What about uh, my NCAA, you know, D2 standing? What about my mascot? What about the ability for me to play another school that I've now been integrated with? You know, can that happen? Um, so that is an extremely important question. And you're right, it's, it's not just be because it's athletics, it's because of what it symbolizes, right, about, about this whole process. Um, now, we were able to successfully make the case um, first to our accrediting agency to uh, credit, to, you know, to accredit the, the two new institutions, Penn West and Commonwealth University in the Northeast. And NCAA granted our request uh, to allow each uh, of those campuses within the integrated uh, universities to keep their Division II teams and, and to play each other. So I, I sort of think that, um, you, you know, we, how, uh, this is an exaggeration, but we're getting the best of both worlds here uh, with, with, with how this is, with how this is working out so far. 
Dan, Dan, what are your thoughts on the athletics uh, side of this? Uh, obviously, it ha- does drive enrollment on those campuses. It does drive alumni engagement. Um, and, but it, it also, it couldn't just be its own piece of this. It had to be integrated with everything else that you've been talking about. So, uh, you know, a couple of things. One of them is that uh, NCAA and, and middle states also have been great partners in this process. Uh, you know, if you think about them, they're both membership organizations. They're both committed to higher education for the same reason that we are. Higher education, you know, has the opportunity to change lives. And, 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 and athletics is, is, in the NCAA's um, case, is critically important, uh, in particular to our rural schools. Of our schools, 14 of them, I'd say 12 of them would be rural or certainly very sub urban. Uh, we did some analytics uh, going into this to see whether or not um, uh, athletics was net positive in terms of the revenues that derived from it. And if you look at, um, you know, and, and there's a variety of uh, sort of positives that come out of it. Students who are uh, athletes do better than non-athletes in terms of their retention and graduation rates, actually considerably better. Uh, uh, and it's not just the athletes themselves, it's the ancillary organizations that form when you have athletics, whether it's a band or cheerleading or, you know, a sports science program, um, so that they, 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 um, in, they're engaging across a wide number of students. Of course, all of those students will do, uh, you know, better because they are engaged. Um, because of that breadth, it, it attracts enrollments that, you know, would, uh, would, would decline if there were no athletics. So and, uh, from an operating point of view, it's net positive. Um, it was a good, good piece of work. I think if you include the, the facilities and the stadiums and stuff like that, that's probably not the case. Um, and then you get sort of involved in the mystery of whether or not, you know, alum who donate because they're, you know, keen football fans or whatever, um, uh, would, would be as active donors if, if there was no team. So, um, uh, but, but uh, you know, net, net, again, pull, up, pull out the facilities cost. It was uh, important and important for our students in terms of uh, enrollment size, but also graduation rates. Also important role, especially in urban, a rural setting uh, to as a, as promote, promote diversity. Um, you can get people from uh, you know, different counties, different cities, different states uh, because of athletic programs, which is all good for the, you know, and I use diversity in this broadest sense of the student body. So, so athletic was important and it's certainly important to the communities and the towns and um, you know, middle states being a good partner, I think worked with us to find a way where the teams could be you know, independent. You don't want, um, you, know, you have to have a degree of, you have to have a, a high degree of independence in the athletics program so that you can't just stack one of them, you know, because <laughs> you're not gonna lead, right? Because you right. Um, and that's a, re- a reasonable, you know, very reasonable concern. And so good for, uh, you know, middle states as a membership organization, you'd expect them to, I mean, uh, NCAA, you'd expect them to, to, to be concerned about all the right things. And they were, and we were able to satisfy them and work with them to come up with a way where those programs could be separate enough to allow their, allow their teams to compete. So we're excited moving forward. Um, uh, and uh, look forward to, to, to what, what, what um, prevails. Yeah. That, sounds, that sounds really good. Yeah. So shifting a little bit, you mentioned facilities, and obviously each campus has its own set of facilities across academic, athletic, residential. What do we do with the campus facilities in general that are no longer being used because enrollments have declined? And also, how do you, how do you manage debt and bonding through this whole process? It must be, is it now collective debt that you're assuming, or is each institution still responsible for paying that debt off? So do you want me to start, Cindy, and then you yeah, can- Yeah, you can start, in. and then I'll, I'll yeah. jump in, sure. 
So our corporate structure, we're a single corporate structure. So basically imagine a single bank account. Um, obviously funds are booked against each of the universities. So they have you know, uh, funds booked in their reserves, et cetera, but it's a single corporate entity. And as a consequence, the corporate entity is responsible for its debt. Um, so uh, A, uh, so B, it also means that the schools which have financial challenges, um, those challenges redound directly to schools that do not, right? So the, 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 probably one of the strongest rationales in universities becoming, moving towards a sort of sustaining operating model is that we simply cannot continue to go to, to operate in a way where some of our universities are subsidizing others. The, the, the higher education world is too competitive. Everybody's suffering uh, from those competitive uh, stresses and we can't just continue to tax those who are doing a little bit better in order to, to, to support those that are not. So, um, so, so, uh, so, so that was been, a, that, that sustaining operations has been a driver. Um, getting out from under, you know, we, we've got the debt that's, um, I said the most, so there's good debt and there's not such good debt. Um, the not such good debt, of course, tends to concentrate in residence halls where there's not enough students living in them to pay the debt service that you often got 20 years left of it. And they tend to concentrate in a small number of universities. We're obviously trying to do what we can, um, uh, sell those buildings if we can find uh, third parties that want to buy them, um, you know, find third party tenants. Uh, um, uh, where there is no debt or where we can write off the debt, we're demolishing buildings that are mothballed. They're less expensive to, um, to, it's to, when we have funds put aside for that, we're kind of working through a, a whole bunch of buildings. Yeah. Um, they are less expensive. To, they, they cost something to operate even when they're not being used. So they're less expensive right. to bring down. They actually save money if we bring them down. So it's really a portfolio approach to the debt. Um, uh, and it's something that we're going to have to figure out how to grow out of. I mean, fascinating because the vast majority of the, I'm gonna call it bad debt, that's concerning debt is in residence halls, it sort of constrains us to a model of higher education, which is diminishing, mm -hmm. which is a residentially based, you know, program. Mm -hmm. you got 20 years left on your bonds in residence halls, you got residence halls for 20 years, unless you can figure out a, a, another operation. Right. So you're kind of, our, our debt structure perversely commits us to the kind of educational model that's becoming less and less um, common, uh, which is an interesting set of challenges we're gonna just have to deal with. Cindy? I would, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think Dan's basically, uh, you know, covered uh, uh, the answer to your question. It's, it's a multifaceted approach. Uh, it's campus to campus. Um, you know, s some are, are pursuing uh, the, the issue, particularly as Dan's talking about the, the mothballing or the bringing down of uh, uh, buildings um, uh, more aggressively or able to that, than others. The only thing I would add uh, is that it's yet another area where um, we continue to work with um, the governor's office, the agencies, uh, DGS, et cetera, um, and, and other um, uh, state agencies uh, as well you know, to see if we can come up with, uh, with, with creative solutions. Um, and it's just an ongoing process. Um, I, I will mention, oh, just one other thing, um, which is that as, as far as our own system is concerned, um, we actually uh, made a decision. I, I had made this decision actually long ago, but we were able to execute it under Dan's leadership. Uh, we um, have sold the really beautiful Dixon Center uh, campus, um, which was built for the system, uh, and by the way, is in excellent condition, et cetera. It's just that, you know, in this day and age, 
It, 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 it really wasn't being utilized properly. Um, and, you know, we don't need a sort of a monument to ourselves, which just sort of seems to me kind of originally was. Um, and uh, we were delighted that we sold it to um, a large nonprofit who needs the whole campus for a bunch of different uh, activities that they're going to be doing. So, you know, kind of a win-win, uh, you know, for, for, for taxpayers and, and, and for the state. And the Dixon Center was in Harrisburg, so it was not attached to any of the other campuses we're discussing right now. It was a standalone. Correct. Building, right? Yeah. Okay. Correct. Okay. Correct. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Um, you know, Dan, and, and you mentioned earlier about the changing dynamics of the workforce. And, and talk with us a little bit about where you see these, this evolution of the system addressing Pennsylvania's workforce needs. Sure. I mean, you know, if you start with the sort of gap in the credentials that the workforce needs, it's big, right? And so you think about it simplistically, where are you going to get those people to educate up to the level that they need to be educated up to in order to meet it? I mean, you're talking about a lot of folks. Uh, if, if we, if the Pennsylvania State, we, we, the Pennsylvania State system currently, we produce about a fifth of all the BAs in the state. I don't know what the number is, the proportion for MAs. It's a proportion. Um, uh, if for us to do our share we would have to start today producing 2,000 more BAs. We do 17,000 a year and about, um, oh gosh, what's the number? It's about um, uh, uh, 2,000 more and 1,200 more MAs. We do about 5,000 uh, a year. So that's a, that assumes that every other college and university in the state is increasing its credentialing productivity proportionally, hmm. which of course, now think about it. Where are we going to get those people? Right. Well, right. you're going to get them from people who are currently graduating high school, they're the traditional age population, but they're not going to college. So let's call them college ready, but not college bound. You're gonna get them from people who are already enrolling in our colleges, but they're stopping out, right? We're pretty, you know, our stopout rates uh, is, you know, we're pushing, I think our graduation rate is overall six year, probably 65%, 35% not graduating. Um, you're gonna get them from adults who are returning to the uh, education after a period away or uh, whether they have some college or not, or from people who want, you know, don't want a degree, but they might want some kind of a shorter course certificate in some area of whatever financial services. So now we're talking, so there are people out there who need, who are not educated to the credential, to the, to the um, higher education level who were there to be educated, but they are also probably the most difficult students to engage with effectively. And they're at least likely to be able to afford our price point. Right. Right. Just is what it is. So who's going to go teach those students? You know, and, and nothing against our sister institutions, but most of our sister institutions in this state operate what's called a high fees, high aid model, which means they got to get in the door enough fee paying students who can pay something like full freight in order to subsidize people who come in the door who can't. Right. Well, there just aren't enough wealthy people left. The endowments aren't big enough to go as deep as you need to go into that pool. I mean, so, so you know, it's one of these cases where economic development engine as the the aspect of a higher education which is an economic development engine creates workforce is also married to the fact that also is a driver of social mobility we've got to reach into populations who have been underserved and serve them and until we lower the price of our education we cannot oh and by the way and you'll know this as an educator education isn't simply like a fire hose you turn it at the next person they get just as wet as the last each of those student groups where there's growth opportunity require a different kind of support. They probably require a different kind of, I'm gonna call it classroom pedagogy, even though it may not happen in the classroom, right? Um, uh, 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 so, and, and, and so in order, so it's not just about lowering the price so that we can reach those folks. 
It's also about investing in our staff and our faculty so that yeah. they have the competencies they need. We're talking about teaching a whole different kind of community of students. It looks very different than the one we're very good at. And so how do we invest in our people in order to provide that kind of capability? It can't just, turns out you can't just go to a faculty member and say, hey, could you be culturally competent because the student <laughs> body is becoming more diverse? That's not very helpful. Right. Right. So, you know, and it, it's tied to the kind of investment that we're looking for from the state. You just can't operate this system across 14 sites at $480 million and expect it to deliver, you know, annually and expect it to deliver the benefits of public education. You basically got a privatized system. You know, if it continues to be funded at this level by the state, it will become more privatized. It will continue to shrink because the number of, you know, and we will, and, but, but more problematically, because it really isn't about us at the end of the day, who cares? about whether or not a you know, university has X or Y thousand enrollments. The question is, are we doing what we need to do for the state? And unless we crack these two problems, build the capabilities that we need in our people and come up with affordable pathways into and through higher education, we're just not gonna, we, the, Pennsylvania's economy will suffer. It's a policy choice. It makes total sense. And, and you know, speaking as a former um, you know, student in the PASHE system, uh, I, 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 it, it confounds me all the change that those campuses have undergone because of the kinds of students that are coming to campus. There's just fewer high school graduates. And in Pennsylvania, it has gotten more expensive. So the dynamic is come, we'll help you become more socially mobile, but we on campus have to provide the infrastructure for you to be successful. Um, Cynthia, what's your take on this? Uh, you know, I, I, I think uh, I, I agree with what, what Dan said. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, again, I always get back to who you have to work with, right, to, to, to get things done. Um, and, and I think, uh, you know, one, one of the uh, takeaways is the need to make sure um, that you're working with the governor, that you are uh, deliberately and carefully cultivating relationships um, that are going to, you know, help you get to the point where you have to get to. But, but we absolutely have to get to the point where Dan is, is, is talking about. Um, uh, we, I think, recognize, I, I think I want to, you know, just speaking, I guess, for the board or as a representative, um, you know, of uh, uh, the board governance level, um, the, the recognition of where we are now and who our students are now and what their needs are now and how very different it is. Um, is, is critically important. And, you know, when you're locked in the old way of thinking, um, you're, you're never going to be able to progress. And I, I think, I guess, another takeaway that leads me to uh, with regard to the board is how much education um, we've done. We're at a point now where most of our meetings um, are, are educational, so that we, we, we really have a board at this point that deeply understands today's students deeply understands um, that uh, DEI is not just a saying, um, you know, uh, that uh, it, has, it has implications not only for our, our moral obligation, but for our economic uh, obligation, um, you know, to the Commonwealth. Uh, so again, it's a collective effort. Um, and your board needs to be there too. They simply need to understand um, what the current climate is of higher education, who the students are, 
who they're who they are less are of are and who they are more of at this point, um, and and what the challenges are to meet those needs and how you know public policy because we're state owned has a has a huge implication. Uh, it's it's a policy choice, as Dan is very fond of, stay, of saying, uh, by the state. But I think you know we're we're making the case that it's a very wise investment. I don't want to go too far into the weeds here, but anybody who knows the geography of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania knows that there are state system schools, and there's Pennsylvania State University, which is state related, and Pennsylvania right. State University has 24 campuses spread out amongst the state some of them not too far physically from where some of the PASHI schools are looked like. Any thoughts on the, the overlapping geographic or academic offerings that could complicate the success of your venture? Um, well, I'll start and then um, as always let Dan, you know, come in with the details. Um, you know, but from, from the governance point of view, first of all, it's not, it's not a new situation. Uh, those branch campuses have existed for a number of years. And by the way, University of Pittsburgh um, has, I don't know, five or six as well. Uh, so it's not, it's not only Penn State. Um, there's overcapacity uh, in, 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 in the Commonwealth. Um, overall, with, public higher, with higher education, and probably specifically with public higher education, and I haven't even mentioned the community colleges, which also don't function as a system. So we, we, we have... Uh, very little of a sense of, um, you know, a higher education master plan, uh, very little, I mean, little or none of that. Um, it breeds constant competition for funds. Um, it has for years mitigated against working together, complicated by other factors such as you know, whose faculty is unionized and whose faculty isn't unionized and, you know, what are the implications of that and, and other, you know, uh, other unions, I guess, uh, as well. Um, so it, it's, it's a very complicated situation. I know I'm not answering your question, but I don't think particularly that the integrations um, uh, uh, are you know, I don't, I'm not sure they're a factor one way or another because the situation is, is very longstanding. At least we are acting in a sort of a more efficient and deliberative, uh, you know, manner. Um, but we also represent very different things, Karen. So, you know, just briefly, and, and, and you know this, but, but for your listeners, uh, Penn State, for example, um, is, is the Commonwealth's only land grant institution. Our 14 institutions started off as normal schools. Um, they were ba basically high school level uh, in, in the days when uh, you know, people didn't achieve a high school education. So they were training teachers to get people, you know, they were training teachers who could teach really at a high school level, but could impart uh, you know, at least elementary education, particularly in the rural areas. They grew over 150 years into um, into state colleges and then came together um, as universities, comprehensive universities, uh, a couple of them doctoral granting in a, in a system, but it's a very different um, history, culture, mindset, and purpose from the land-grant institution. Um, and the land-grant institution establishing feeder campuses, those feeder campuses are very different from our set of 
comprehensive uh, universities, which, as you noted, each have their own identities, their athletics, you know, their mascots, uh, you know, their, their uh, halls of fame, et cetera. That's not true with Penn State's uh, uh, Commonwealth campuses. Uh, um, so, you know, all of that complicates the situation. Um, I personally think it would be great to kind of get together and talk about, you know, what we're trying to achieve uh, uh, in, in the Commonwealth and how we can each, you know, uh, work together and separately in, in achieving that. And, and I believe that, you know, we're going to be getting to that point. I really do, because I think that we, um, as the PASHI system, have now really demonstrated um, that, uh, that we can be purposeful, intentional, um, better align our costs with our, our revenues, understand what our purpose is, and be very focused about delivering our mission in a way that just wasn't true, you know, 10 years ago. So I think we're on our way to, to, to doing that. And I, I think we're on our way, you know, with, with uh, uh, working better with the other public, uh, either state-related uh, or community colleges in the Commonwealth. Got it. Got it. Dan, anything you want to add to that? No, I think Cindy's covered it. Okay. We've got a couple more questions here, but one of the things I'm paying attention to is who else is going to be in this boat, right? And I just listened to a podcast uh, a few days ago about the new chancellor of the Wisconsin system and what Wisconsin is facing with similar hard conversations. So now that you both have navigated both a state legislature, a system of 14 campuses through this incredibly complicated maze, what pieces of advice might you have for folks in other states who are either system chancellors and boards, presidents of individual campuses, or faculty who worry about their teaching loads and futures? Dan, let, I'll come to you first. Oh, you're on mute, Dan. Yeah, Cindy knows my okay. stock answer. It's don't do it. Um, yeah. <laughs> Which I so, reject. You know, I guess a couple of things. Yeah, it's the only really thing we don't agree on, by the way. Right. <laughs> a couple of things. I mean, I, you know, I think um, you've, you've got to keep, you, you've got to focus on students. That, that it's, I think it's easy to try to drive these changes through the financial circumstances, but that's, you know, if you try to save money, you will. But that's not what we're trying to accomplish. We're trying to expand student opportunity. You know, there's other, there's certain goals, right? That, yeah. that we and there there are a number of goals and and, and goal that, that that won't be unique to us, but they're going to be also constraints that will be unique to individual institutions. You know, ours it was politically impossible to think about closing an institution, however financially challenged it might be. It's just not going to happen in in currently in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, and there are other constraints which you know don't need to get into, but understanding what your goals are and then trying to fit a strategy which achieves your goals given your constraints, I think that requires a huge amount of tenacity. And um, because you're gonna, you know, you're gonna meet, gonna be meet resistance. The future of higher education it does not look like the past, and um, and it's 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 it is um, as with other industries which have been disrupted by demographic, political, financial, you know, all of the pressures that are bearing down on, on public higher education. If you're looking for a good read, Arthur Levine's new book, which talks about, you know, compares the sort of disruption in higher education, we can call it that, with that, which has gone before in healthcare and music industry, et cetera. And there's some interesting lessons that have learned. Look, it's not going to go swimmingly. We can make it go better. Higher education has not been elegant in the way that it approaches change. It approaches change through addition, never through substitution. You get into these 
difficult financial circumstances and you're trying to sort of serve um, populations which are really very complicated to engage with effectively and, and have real sort of a, you know, a, a price point challenges, um, you're gonna have to be open to just doing things completely differently. And that's not something that any industry is ours, ours included. So it's gonna require leadership, tenacity, resilience, um, a real kind of um, focus on, on, on data, uh, um, you know, to, to sort of help guide the way and to of course correct where necessary. Um, it's gonna take a pretty significant courage on the part of leadership to actually know when they have to course correct to make the mistake and turn in another direction. That's also, you know, a challenge. Um, uh, but it's doable, I guess that's the other. And it's coming to a theater near many public higher education systems and universities and colleges in the country. So, um, you know, if we can offer something back, great. Uh, I know there's a community of leaders. We talk to each other. Uh, we've got each other on cell, on uh, speed dial, um, and we trade, you know, uh, gossip, rumors, and um, occasionally tips and tricks on, you know, how to accomplish difficult tasks. That's great, Cindy. What are your thoughts and recommendations for those folks who are staring and staring down at this possibility? Well, you know, I'm. I can. I can. Uh, I feel very comfortable talking about this sort of having lived through it and also having studied change, by the way, uh, and, and, the, and the role the governance boards uh, can uh, or should uh, play in, in change. So, it, you know, it's a really interesting topic. I, it's hard to know where to begin. I mean, I think the, the key takeaways, um, we'll start with, with, with boards, uh, is to have the right executive in place. That, that's, that is number one. Um, you're never going to kind of train somebody or convince somebody. Um, you have to have the right person in place. Um, I, I'm not sure there's anything more critical, and I'm not sure there's anything more critical in, in also having uh, leadership on the board side um, uh, that is very comfortable working with the leadership on the executive side and vice versa. It has to be a partnership. It cannot get done otherwise. So I, I think that's, you know, that, that, that's really important. And I think that to say, oh, well, we can't do that because we're a public or a, a political board, that's just not true. That is absolutely not true. Now, you do have to have a relationship then, you know, with, with the political leadership to say, I need such and such a type of person, uh, you know, please keep this in mind when you're appointing people to the board. These are the criteria, you know, generally speaking. Um, but you have to have those relationships. You have to have it at, uh, at the governor level. You have to have it between board leadership and executive leadership. I, I really think that's, that's the number one. Um, the, you know, the, the, the second is, Dan uh, stated it, but I can't state it uh, in, enough, uh, which is um, data information education. Cannot have enough. Um, you have to be transparent, you have to own up to where you are and what's going on, and then you've got to have uh, constant information so you understand the history, um, the higher ed environment, um, the great disruptions that are happening and going to happen, as Dan alluded to. You have to have really deeply, deeply educated um, board members, and I, I think that uh, when you do that, you you start to see sort of um, inevitable ways that people start to think. And I'll, you know, pat my board on the back because I do have a completely political board, 
Um, even if they weren't appointed by the governor, they were appointed by the governor in, in terms of, you, you know, a, a sitting secretarial position or what have you. It's a completely political board. And yet, because we've made such an effort to be transparent, to own up to what we have to do, and to get deeply, deeply educated on so many different levels, um, we have board meetings where we almost consistently have unanimity or mm -hmm. near unanimity on very hard votes. Uh, on easy votes and on hard votes. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, I'm telling you, we've got people everywhere on the political uh, spectrum, people who think they're representing certain constituency, constituencies, et cetera. But this combination of transparency, honesty, uh, constant information and education has led us to a place where uh, we can discuss issues and we almost always come to agreement. Oh. And the other key thing is, because we're, we're keeping, as Dan said, the students in mind. That is first and foremost, always, you know, the, the North Star um, that, that we come back to. So it's a combination of all of those things. But, you know, that's my advice um, to, to boards and to chancellors. Um, you know, like each other, get along, respect each other, listen to each other, and um, never, ever, ever stop uh, the education and the information. Good advice. Maybe our Congress will take advantage of some of that uh, good good uh, uh, advice as well. Uh, my last question for you both is uh, give you give us one thing you're really paying close attention to in the higher ed space in the next two to three years, something you're really saying that could make a difference. Uh, Cindy, I'll start with you. Um, you know, I would think, I, frankly, I would go back to what I was really struck and moved by uh, Arthur Levine's um, uh, piece in Inside Higher Ed, um, which wasn't all that long ago, uh, about how higher education is following um, the, the major fundamental disruption of, as Dan said, the music industry, for example, how we get our music. Uh, you know, you used to have to go to Tower Records and buy your, your album and that was it. Um, it, it is completely consumer driven, um, uh, consumer choice. Um, uh, that's true with other, uh, you know, other industries It's certainly true with other entertainment formats as well. Um, and it's already started with higher education, but that's the key thing to watch and is like this whole notion of a, tra a traditional student getting a traditional liberal arts education that takes four years, you know, with a certain number of credits each semester is, is, and is, you know, kind of decided by somebody else, the faculty and the administration, right? Not by the, the student. It, is that all gonna completely turn around? And if so, how are we going to be, and that doesn't even bring into technology, which, which to me is, is, is the facilitator for all of this, but, but the disruption is the real key. Um, how are we, moving to prepare ourselves, even as we continue to educate, um, you know, the students that we have and appeal, uh, you know, to, to the students that we have. So you, we got to be in both worlds, but that other world's happening super fast. That's great. And I'll be sure to link the article in the liner notes for the podcast for those who are listening. Uh, fantastic. Dan, what are you keeping your eye on? Yeah, hey, just um, to, since we're plugging Arthur's book, it's The Great Upheaval, Higher Education's Past, Present, and Uncertain Future, and it's written with Scott Van Pelt. Um, it's a great read. Uh, so I guess I'm going to keep my eye on, um, you know, uh, sort of the post-pandemic student. Uh, you know, they're, they're, uh, in my conversations with students, I try to tour our campuses uh, every semester. 
virtually these past couple of years, but it's been interesting sort of as we emerge, hope, thank God from the, or hopefully from this pandemic, you know, it, it, you're seeing students sort of expectations beginning to change. Um, one of the ways that I believe they're changing is that they're now, students seem very used to the flexibility of, of being able to determine whether or not to attend a course uh, online or on ground. Um, in fact, I think there's a sense where they want that choice to continue, not just at the course level, but at the calendar level. So I want to attend on Tuesday, but maybe not on Thursday, um, because my schedule, you know, is X. Uh, and I, if that's the case, and if, if we're seeing, and of course, we're going to see, you know, now um, another several cohorts of students who had some uh, pandemic experience in, in high school, as well as in college, you know, coming through our system, um, and you'll see whatever lasting effects are available. If that's true, uh, and we're now beginning to think about, you know, a, a degree of personalized learning down to the course section day level, right? The actual scheduled course level. Um, boy, pull on that thread. And how do you actually prepare? How do you teach effectively in that way, in multi, right? In, in multimodal way. And are, are students going to so prefer that level of personalization that universities and colleges that are able to offer it? Are going to be able to, um, you know, have a significant competitive advantage. So um, I think that's one thing I'll keep in mind. I just give it a throw in a second. You know, I, I can't help thinking again because of the because of the students that we're going to be facing and the importance of that sort of professional development for faculty as well as staff. We're going to have to think differently about shared governance. Maybe not restructuring it, but sort of how does it operate at clock speed? You know, we don't have time to figure out these problems. We have, you know, we have zero time. Um, it, it should be yesterday. We demonstrated that we can operate with clock speed and respect our shared governance when we had to transition like two days from wholly face-to-face -to, -face to wholly online. But whether we can continue to act with that alacrity and sort of work that into our normal course of consultation process, uh, we'll see. Um, my sense is that there's a, as much as there is sort of um, uh, uh, evidence that, that the post-pandemic student is gonna want and need things, different, different things from its university, that within the post-pandemic university, there is a, a, a rush back. There's a kind of a, a reactionary traditionalism, um, uh, which I would warn against. I think yeah. they're in, in, in that, that, that we're never going back would be my guess. A few institutions may figure it out. Uh, my guess is they would be exceptionally well endowed and probably very small. Um, uh, and there may be less than 50 or 100 of them in the entire country. For the rest of us, I suspect that that is not the most productive way to go. Um, and yet we're going to have to work, we're going to have to work with our people in different ways in order to get to this future, which I think is going to stretch us. Well, you've given the listeners and myself a lot to think about in this, in this uh, conversation. And I'm grateful for your time, but I'm also grateful for you leaving us to look forward versus getting mired into the, the intricacies of trying to do a massive system change like this. But to, to rather than say we need to get back to normal, we need to get back to new. And I think that's what you both have talked about today. And then what that looks like and how we keep students in, <clears throat> excuse me, in the forefront of all this is our greatest challenge with the multimodal and also all the multiple dimensions that students bring to our classroom. So Dan and Cindy, I really wanna thank you both for your time today. I think this has been a very helpful conversation to have. And I certainly continue to wish you the best of luck as we go into this new era in the fall of 2022, 2023. I, I'm hopeful it'll be a, a great time for all the campuses 
that are affected. So thank you. Thank, thank you, Karen. Please come back and interview us again in a year. <laughs> we'll see where we are. We may have to do that. Absolutely. A different story, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Thank you both very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. We loved it. Thanks.